This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. When a populist wave swept Donald Trump into the White House in 2016, the media's favorite adjective of the moment became unprecedented. But in fact, America's political history is peppered with a long list of populist leaders, some of whom even made it to the presidency, and more than a few whose brief moment in the sun ended in defeat, public disgrace, and even assassination. American populism has always been home to a fascinating assortment of charismatic leaders, characters, kooks, cranks, and sometimes charlatans, who have, with widely varying degrees of success, led the charge of ordinary folks who've gotten wise to the ways of the swamp. Let's face it, we're a sucker for a fellow who'll tell us whatever we want to hear, and as my guest today points out, there is something absolutely American about the notion that you, my friends, are getting screwed. He's Fox News politics editor Chris Steyerwald, and he's written a fun and lively account of America's populist tradition called Every Man a King, a short, colorful history of American populists. Today, Chris joins me on the podcast to discuss where populists and populist movements come from, how economic resentment fuels populism even in times of huge prosperity, and why the will of the people doesn't always make for great policy. He discusses why populist leaders are so prone to hucksterism and easy answers, including one politician who literally started out as a snake oil salesman and ended up inspiring a classic American novel, and why it's a good thing that he and most other populist leaders never actually had to govern. He talks about the least likely populist, President Teddy Roosevelt, why his progressive bull moose party quickly fizzled after the election of 1912, but how it had a dramatic impact on the Republican Party for over a century. He describes how George Wallace shifted the focus from economic populism to cultural populism, why he says Pat Buchanan is the grandfather of Trumpism, and how that kook with a crew cut, Ross Perot, invented the trope of the businessman who can fix Washington. Plus, the time America flirted with electing a self-professed socialist and radical, and I'm not talking about Bernie Sanders, folks, why the election of 1864 gives Chris hope, and he suggests that modern-day populists might want to aspire to be the Andrew Jackson of Hispanic America. Coming up with Chris Steyerwalt in just a moment. Chris Starwalt is the politics editor at Fox News, where he authors the daily Fox News halftime report and co-hosts the hit podcast Perino and Starwalt. I'll tell you what. He's written a new book called Every Man a King, a short, colorful history of American populists. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Now, the title is a reference to a pledge made by the Louisiana populist Huey Long, and he's just one of seven American populists you discuss in Every Man a King. And I love the opening line to this book. Uh, You say, there is something absolutely American about the notion that you, my friends, are getting screwed royally. (laughs) 
<laughs> now that's not good, is it? Uh, I mean, does populism just boil down to grievance politics? It, well, uh, what's what's the Woody Allen joke? Uh, even paranoiacs have enemies. Um, uh, some grievances are real. Yeah. You know the the grievances that Andrew Jackson uh, carried forth on behalf of the uh, Scots-Irish immigrants and their descendants who were filling up the interior of the country uh, in the booming start of the 19th century, for for those people, they had grievances mm-hmm. uh, against an Eastern elite that shut them out. And so, yeah, um, did, the, did the farmers who supported uh, William Jennings Bryan have grievances against uh, New York, uh, Philadelphia, and the uh, economic centers of the East that profited by tariffs and left them to wither uh, like winter wheat out in the prairie? Sure. Um, you know, to me, populism is about uh, when the burr under the saddle uh, gets to itching so bad that that revolt breaks out. When you have a group, any group of people, uh, you know, in our current moment, we have populist, we have populist leaders on both sides, on all sides. Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, people who are leading, they say, we're leading a revolt. We are storming the parapet. We are coming in and you people who have controlled the levers of power, we're going to take you on. We're going to take you out. Yeah, and I think that you say that populism usually gets traction when there's an imbalance between freedom and order in society. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, government rightly understood is to find that equipoise between freedom and order, that we need uh, we need enough. It was C.S. Lewis who, in I think, I think it was The Four Loves, but he talks about um, – What's the purpose of government? What's the rightful purpose of a government? And he says, a, a man and his wife sitting and talking by the fire, a man reading uh, a book alone in his room, a man working in his garden by himself. These are the small things. These are the, the purpose of government is to allow for those things. If you live in Russia, you don't get you, you not even with your wife alone. Do you say what you want all the time? Uh, if you live in China, you certainly don't read what you want all the time. But if you live in Somalia, you don't work in your garden, la di da, by yourself on a pleasant Sunday afternoon because there is no garden. And if there was one, there'd be RPG rounds going overhead. So, rightful government is to protect your freedoms, but also to maintain enough order so that your freedoms can be preserved. Now, you bring up an interesting paradox to populism in this book because there's always some strong economic resentment behind these movements. And apparently that happens even when the economy has been healthy. And we sort of see that right now because we have the president of the United States telling people the economy is doing gangbusters, yet his supporters, although they don't blame him for this, still complain that they're not getting a fair shake. Whatever happened to a rising tide lifts all ships here? (laughs) Well, there's more to life than money. Yeah. Um, You know, when we look at George Wallace... The economy in 1968 was not the issue, right? We were still in 1968 in that – at that point, what had been the longest single period of economic expansion. Wages were – had had risen. Uh, the, the rising tide was lifting a lot of boats. But what were people angry about? They were angry about busing. In the South, they had been angry about integration. But in the North, they were angry about busing. They were angry about culture wars. They were angry about hippies and, as he called them, women's libbers and pinkos and (laughs) cultural grievance. And let's – while there is a strong economic component to what Trump ended up running as, 
and what, if we recall at the end of the 2016 election, right when he was at his lowest nadir, it was post tape, post disaster. He was he had slid back down to the 30s, low 40s. It, he looked doomed, and he became willing to essentially run as a conventional Republican. Newt Gingrich and some guys got a hold of him by the lapels and said, "Sign this." This is your economic platform. Say this about these judges. And he did. And he shored up support among traditional Republicans in the suburbs. But the core of Donald Trump's candidacy wasn't about economic grievance. It was about cultural grievance. It was about uh, immigrants are changing our culture. You're not allowed to say Merry Christmas anymore. All of those things, he, his supporters see him as their champion against a dominant culture, that they see a dominant culture in which their ways are being rejected and stepped on and taken down, and they're being supplanted by this new liberal order, Hollywood and New York, and Donald Trump is their pugilist in the ring. So it doesn't always have to be economic. George Wallace is one of the populists you cover in this book. He was kind of the father of this shift from economic mm-hmm. populism to fighting cultural change. So is it fair to say that it was about more than just campaigning against segregation and being a racist? There was also a broader sentiment that he was tapping into at the time. What I found f- so fascinating about Wallace, and I had never known this before. So Wallace was in uh, Alabama politics seen as a moderate on race when he ran for governor the first time in 1958. <laughs> really? He he had been he had a, as a judge, he had a reputation as being uh, decent and fair to African American attorneys uh to be uh with defendants, criminal defendants, not heaping on uh extra harsh sentences for uh black defendants as was the want of most ju- of most judges in those days, certainly politically aspirant judges in those days. And he was even on the board uh, at the Tuskegee Institute. So he was considered moderate by Alabama standards. But then he so he runs for governor and gets crushed and he gets crushed by an out and out bigot segregationist scumbag. A total hate monger beats him. And he learns. And, you know, what you see again and again with these populist leaders, when is it about the movement? When is it about them? Wallace figures out, and there's a, a very dark quote um, uh, from the, that he recounted to a biographer. He ran the first time as a Huey Long or William Jennings Bryan style progressive populist. A share of the wealth, uh, take it from the rich people, give it to the poor people. We need better roads. We need to do all these things. So he was definitely running a populist campaign, but it wasn't racist. It wasn't expressly racist. Mm-hmm. He said, I tried to talk about schools. I tried to talk about roads. I tried to talk about all the things I want. But then when I said blank and he said the word, obviously, uh, they pounded the floor for me. And he realized that the way to power was to be a demagogue and to exploit hate and to exploit division and exploit fear. And he he turned the corner from – that and and it's what's fascinating to me is so too did a lot of populism in America, and yeah. it shifted this energy. The culture of resentment shifted from economic resentment. Not everywhere. Bernie Sanders is still with us today, um, but 
this emergence of this right-wing populism focused on cultural grievance. You were just talking about how George Wallace kind of stumbled on to this political hot-button issue that he could campaign on. And I wonder, because that seems to be common among <laughs> many populist politicians in America, they tend to be painted as kind of hucksters. They'll say whatever you want to hear, and it doesn't matter if they'll deliver in the end. Does that hold true across most of these seven men that you talk about in this book? Well, uh, a lot of them had were lucky that they didn't have to govern or do anything. Right. <laughs> um, a lot of uh, uh, seriously, you know, Andrew Jackson and got over the he got over the fence. He made it. He won. Uh, they they I won't say stole an election from, him, but they it they pretty near did. Uh, Henry Clay, uh, the 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 electoral college was undis- indecisive. And uh, it was thrown to the House, and Henry Clay gave the election to John Quincy Adams. And Jackson not only came back he, – he had won the popular vote. He had won more electoral votes. Um, but in a deadlock, he, they gave it to Quincy Adams. So Jackson comes back and smashes Quincy Adams four years later. And then when Clay runs four years after that, Adams smash, or uh, Jackson smashes him too. Mm-hmm. And the, what's interesting in this, Jackson then has to govern. So his, for example, his hatred for the Second Bank of the United States, how much of the economic woe, and we don't think about this, of the 19th century and all the way really up to the Great Depression, the boom and butt, terrible busts. You'd have unemployment at a third of the workforce. You'd have terrible depredations, was caused by Andrew Jackson's destruction of the Second Bank of the United States. And who felt the pain the most? Who was hurt the most? His supporters, poor people and their descendants who were – when you have a financial panic, when you have a, an economic catastrophe, who suffers? The people at the margins. Um, you know, New York uh, – I'm sure the people on Wall Street, a lot of bonuses were lost in the panic of 2008. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of bad people you know, went bust and all of that. But where it really hurt were people, middle class people living on the margins who were counting on property values to retire on and were counting on 401ks to retire on. Those were the people who really got burned. Jackson tried to be true to the things that – uh, to, to the things that he promised and tried to be true to standing up against the elites. Um, but it, as it turns out, sometimes the, the policies that they want and, and tariffs maybe turn out to be a good example of this with Trump. The tariffs, uh, the tariffs may end up hurting a lot of the people who Trump wants to help and, and repay for their support. Um, but he feels obliged to do it because that's the pact he made with his movement. You were just saying that it's a good thing that many of these populists never actually had to govern. But right. uh, the you irony is— You can say is, anything you want. Yeah, but the, the irony is that Andrew Jackson and the other one who actually made it to the White House, Teddy Roosevelt, actually left quite popular, didn't they? Well, you know, Roosevelt is a, a very interesting. Um, he he went quite mad. Um <laughs> I I I am in the in the minority of uh, Americans uh, who I am no fan of Teddy Roosevelt. He is so fascinating. You have this guy; he gets thrust into the presidency when a an, an insane person kills President McKinley, and then the youngest president ever at forty four. Roosevelt is thrust into the presidency. He, of course, as a total egomaniac throws himself into the work like he had a mandate. 
and absolutely seizes the reins of power and has a very successful remainder of the term, is re- is elected on his, on his own right to a full term by an even bigger majority than McKinley had beaten William Jennings Bryan. And he goes on, and this is where he starts to really embrace the progressive populism, and this is where he's doing all this stuff. And he's going along gangbusters, and he's got big old William Howard Taft, uh, his secretary of war, lined up to be his successor. And he says, okay, now you're going to do everything I did, and here are the other things you're going to do after I'm gone, and I'll leave, and you can do that. So he goes to Africa, kills a thousand water buffaloes, and (laughs) finds that William Howard Taft, in fact, believes that he is his own person. And William Howard Taft was very conservative. And he did not favor trust busting and he did not favor uh, doing all of the really radical things that Roosevelt was talking about doing in those days and wouldn't. And Roosevelt comes back. And if you talk about hubris, talk about misunderstanding a movement for yourself, Roosevelt comes back, makes his demands and then goes and lays out uh, when Barack Obama did basically his second term pitch, his second term economic pitch. He very intentionally went to the same town in Kansas where uh, Teddy Roosevelt laid out his square deal uh, in for the 1912 election. Right. And and uh, Osawatomie and goes out there and lays it and, and Roosevelt lays out this thing that is a radical departure from even his own policies of before. He takes all, all the way to the convention in Chicago. He fights bitterly. There's violence at the state conventions. There's a serious threat of violence. Mobs are forming. Uh, police are roaming the uh, the aisles of the convention in 1912 because it's gotten so ugly. The hatred between the Roosevelt faction and the Taft faction. Taft finally prevails. Roosevelt bolts, goes down across across the town to Orchestra Hall and forms the Bull Moose Party that night. And they split the Republican vote and let Woodrow Wilson, the only Democrat, only two Democrats got elected president. Between Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt, there were only two Democrats. That was Woodrow Wilson and the other one uh, was um, uh, Grover Cleveland. And Wilson only got in, and we probably only got into the First World War, uh, because of that fit of peak on the part of uh, Roosevelt, who just couldn't stand that somebody else disagreed with him. And of course, of all these men, Roosevelt was probably the least likely populist. Um, he came from old money, New York family, was a product of Boss Platt's political machine in New York. Yep. Where did his progressive populism come from? Roosevelt was so sure that everybody else was stupid. His absolute <laughs> conviction of his genius, of his, and this is as a product of a doting mother. He had was, a, of course, he had been ill as a as a young he had asthma, and this doting father and mother, and the beloved. The if you read, I recommend very highly David McCulloch's book Morning on Mornings on Horseback oh, yeah. about the young Roosevelt. Fascinating, fascinating, and you see where it all comes from. So here is this. You could say spoiled brat, but uh, here is this person who arrives uh, in in the world richer than Croesus and and starts slashing his way through New York state politics or New York City politics and then state politics, and he is convinced that there is a correct way to do things. He and Ross Perot remind me a lot of each other. Uh, there, in their minds, there is a scientific, appropriate, correct way of doing things. There is their way, and then there is the wrong way. And you're not just wrong; you're stupid. And he becomes so convinced of this. And we also have to remember at the time there was a strong belief, and it was strong in Wilson too, that the system that we had 
was antiquated and outdated. It didn't work anymore because what a republic, a, a liberal democracy and republican government are not suitable for the modern technological scientific era. They don't match up to these things. And now we have science. And people say that even now. Well, what the data says, this says, well, here's what we do know. Human beings are uniformly bad at predicting the future. And whenever anybody says, I have the right answer, and this is the way, going back and getting to listen to Ross Perot talk about how Japan and Germany were going to conquer us economically and rule the world, you're like snorting so hard. <laughs> it, you, it's so funny yeah. to hear all these people in 1992, oh, yes, Japan is going, we will be the vassals of Japan. You're like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, Perot was a surprising populist as well, because it's hard for me to imagine populist voters getting behind this sort of wonky IBM suit and tie guy with a bunch of charts and graphs. <laughs> well, but the the magic is there. The same magic is there in that he told you you were getting screwed. Yeah. He said, you know why things are the way that they are? It's because these idiots and crooks are keeping you from your just desserts. And they're doing it to you. And basically, I think it was Dennis Miller in the in those days when he – I think he was still on Saturday Night Live. But he said that the best reason to vote for Perot was it would be like turning on the overhead light in the kitchen and watching all the cockroaches scurry under the refrigerator. <laughs> that the idea of Perot as a smashing change, that you would come in – and this was really one of the best arguments that people made, that, that conservatives uh, made on behalf of Donald Trump, where they said, yeah, well, he may be a – wreck and he may be a this and he may be a that, but he will blow Washington to smithereens. He will shatter this consensus that is stifling us. And who knows what will be on the other side, but it can't be worse than this. And I think that's not too different from the energy that, that was behind Perot. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Chris Steierwald when we come back in just a minute. Perot was sort of famous for peddling easy answers and, you know, telling people Washington already has all the solutions. They're just not using them <laughs> or, you know, That's a businessman right. can they come in plans. and fix everything so easily. <laughs> That's right. And like a, a lot in American business and a lot of these mm -hmm. businessmen and a lot of the, what we hear from corporate America a lot is there's a correct answer out there. It's not just that there are a bunch of right answers or that there are a bunch of right things that we could do. It is that there is an empirically correct answer, and we can arrive at that empirically correct answer. We can have the charts. We can have the graphs to back it up, and then it will just be right. But, of course, a nation of 325 million people and 50 states spread out over 3,000 miles is not that way. Mm -hmm. And you the, – the, the tantalizing belief for Americans is always – that there's some correct setting where we can set the dials and then everything will just hum along in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. You know, when we think about what 9-11 did to us, the, belie the, the strong belief among Americans in 2000 or so was history's over, the Cold War's won, the future is just going to be about getting richer um, and, and this is the way it's going to be. And then you get yanked out of that moment. You get pulled out of that moment. Oh, no. History is going on and the world is falling apart again, but in a new way and tribalism and and sectarianism. And we're going to we're going to rend our garments, but in a different direction. The Americans have especially Americans who are more affluent 
have a strong desire to believe that there is a correct and optimal setting. What is correct and optimal in America is a system that allows that balance always between the elites and the populace, always between freedom and order to keep pushing, pushing, pushing back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, because it's in that back and forth that we can correct, then we overcorrect, and then we come back the other way, and we keep turning it, moving it, moving. It's like sailing a ship into the wind. The breeze changes, the water changes, the conditions change. You have to keep moving the sail. We have a system that lets us do that. And oftentimes, indeed, it seems that the Constitution and populism are at odds. Sure. Because I would promise you one thing. We would not need a Bill of Rights if the things that were in the Bill of Rights were popular. Yeah. There would be <laughs> absolutely no need. We say, we say we think free speech is good. We say that, but we had to write it down because, as it turns out, it's not really popular. Censorship is popular. Don't let him say that. He shouldn't be allowed to say that. Please stop him from saying that. It's popular with governments, too. Don't. Don't do that. Don't assemble over there. Don't talk about that. It'll be China. I very often, maybe not very often, I sometimes hear politicians yearn for the system they have in China. Um, I hear politicians, I hear people like Tom Friedman from the New York, the New York Times columnist and author talk about it. And it's like, well, duh, of course it's simpler if you can control what people say, read, and do. <laughs> Duh. We have, but that's why we have a constitution so that pe the, the rights of these individuals will not be infringed upon by the government. That Bill of Rights, that charter, our constitution and, and the Bill of Rights taken together are to protect the hard and unpopular things. Mm -hmm. You don't need to write it down if it's going to be popular anyway. Yeah, and I think you say that government operates best when it operates slowly, which, of course, makes me think of the Senate and the House and the whole teacup saucer analogy. Um, <laughs> you know, here in California, we're a good example of how poorly that kind of direct government works, because every election, you've got a dozen or more ballot initiatives, and some oh, yeah. of them can get pretty kooky and maybe are reflections of the prevailing attitudes of the moment, but may not be smart policy long term. Well, as I write about in the book, you say to somebody, would you like uh, lower taxes or more spending? And they say, yes. No, no, no. You have to choose. No, no. I'll take both of those things. You know, uh, this week, the federal government is back to a trillion dollar deficit um, because you say, well, do you want big defense spending? Uh-huh. Do you want tax cuts? Yeah. Uh, do you want to not ta uh, change uh, entitlement programs? Yeah, leave those alone. Okay, well, now you're going to spend trillions of dollars more than you can afford. And it's, it, it is yeah. an unavoidable truth. But if you the – the point of our system of government is not to give the people what they want, but to make it possible so that the needs of the people and the will of the people can be heard and have an effect over the longer term – inside the system. That's why we have a House versus a Senate. That's why we have an executive branch that is elected through the Electoral College. That's why we have a Supreme Court that is appointed for uh, th their lifetimes. Can I just say one other thing about that? If you want to know one of the reasons that our system is not working right now and the deficiencies and the frustrations we have, our legislative branch, our Congress has weakened itself perniciously for the past 50 years. We don't have a Congress to speak of, not in the not in the sense that we once did. They refuse the power to make war. They refuse the power to regulate. They have handed that off to administrative agencies in the executive branch. 
they just want to hold televised hearings, raise money, and run for re-election. And they don't want to. And they don't want to talk about things that are hard. They don't want to deal with abortion. Mm-hmm. They don't want to deal with Me Too stuff. They don't want to deal with. No, nope, don't leave it for the courts. Leave it for the executive branch. We don't want to do it. As a consequence, the demands of the people don't have any place to go, and we are ending up with more demagogic and more. Um, authoritarian, I guess that's what I'd have. Maybe that's not the right word, but you have seen the trend. Bush, Obama, and Trump, more executive power. Mm-hmm. Wield to act. Somebody's got to act. As George W. Bush said, uh, when people are hurting, uh, government's got to move. And by that, he meant he's going to move. And Obama, mm-hmm. I have a pen, I have a phone. And Trump basically you know, changed the rules of the Senate so that I can pass whatever I want whenever I want it. And if you won't do that, I'll do it by legislative fiat because we're just going to do it and smash through all these things. That is when we think about what kills a republic and when we think about what kills the freedom of the people, nothing is worse than when the tr- uh, Huey Long said, wouldn't it be, I'm going to butcher this quote, but wouldn't it be something like a dictatorship if the will of the people were perfectly represented at all times. <laughs> he was accused of being a dictator, and he said, oh, yeah? Well, wouldn't it be like a dictatorship if the will of the people was met all of the time? Of course I'd be like a dictator because I'm going to give the people what they want every time. I'm going to say, what do you – and Ross Perot had the idea of televised town halls where people could push a button to vote on what to do, direct democracy, and say – Okay, I'm not a dictator because the people of all 51% of the people have agreed that we are going to confiscate the property of 20% of the people. Or 51% of the people have agreed that we are going to reinstitute Jim Crow laws. Or 51% of the people have agreed on whatever. The tyranny of the majority is the enemy of freedom. Populism is good when it is breaking up the ice pack that surrounds Washington and New York. Uh, and L.A. now, too, but and Silicon Valley. But these centers of power where, the pe- where people and wealth accumulate in these large numbers, it is good that there is a threat against them, and it is good that there is a check on their power. When it crosses over into the tyranny of the majority the, and, and pure majoritarianism, then it's, it's just tyranny by another name. Huey Long, you know, he was one of the rare politicians who actually got pretty far by embracing the label of a socialist, an authoritarian, and a radical. If it hadn't been for the Great Depression, do you think that he would have had such a political ascent? Well, Louisiana was still, he would he would have at least gotten to the Senate. He could have gotten to the Senate from Louisiana uh, because the Louisiana was so poor and so <laughs> and so crooked back in those days yeah. that they the depre- depression or no depression uh, the good people of uh, Winfield and Wynn Parish Louisiana they were going to be poor no matter what but i i do think you're quite right 1935 was a very low watermark for this country and ideas about fascism uh, was not a, fascism was not a dirty word. Um, we know that the American Nazi Party, for example, uh, on the even on the day that Pearl Harbor was bombed, claimed a couple hundred thousand members. Uh, Huey Long claimed seven million members and share our wealth societies across the country. Father Coughlin uh, preached anti-Semitic, vicious, nasty stuff on the radio and had millions of listeners and millions of followers because when times are hard and people are frightened, they are willing to they are willing to listen to authoritarians in ways that they are not under normal circumstances because they say i want protection and i want even if he's a bad guy i want him to be a bad guy for me
Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, at a time when we're talking about wanting to drain the swamp, here you have a guy who was a product of the swamp, both metaphorically and literally growing up in Louisiana. <laughs> and this guy was so crooked that he actually embraced the nickname Kingfish, and he, he had literally been a snake oil salesman before going into politics. Yet the voters loved him, you know, and a good portion of national Democrats were totally at peace with just following a con man. Uh, how did his supporters rationalize his sliminess? Well, think about this. One of his main products that he sold when he was a when he was a, a young man, he was starting out, um, uh, sold door to door, was called wine of Cardui, <laughs> and wine of Cardui was or Cardui was supposed to be a uh, was to heal to to cure the derangements of women uh, at the, at a certain time of the month mm-hmm. uh, and to address the questions of a fallen womb and <laughs> uh, and all of this stuff. And they sold it that way. Now, what it really was, was 40-proof wine. Uh, it was hooch. And it had some thistles and bark and, you know, whatever in it. But it was, it was, it was hooch mm-hmm. in, a, in a dry county in, a, in, in the days of Prohibition. But this was a legal way that you could sell booze. How many of the women who bought Huey Long's wine of Cardui from the Chattanooga Patent Medicine Company, how many of them who bought it knew exactly what this was, that they knew that this was a socially acceptable legal way for them to buy fortified wine and keep it at home? Uh, and their husbands sure weren't going to say anything about it, uh, lest their derangements not be cured anymore. Uh, so for the ba- when you're dealing with a con man, when you're dealing with a huckster, you know, how many, how many of Donald Trump's supporters know that the stuff, some of the stuff he says just isn't true? Mm-hmm. How many of them know it's not true? And they laugh and don't care. And it doesn't bother them because he's goring somebody else's ox. When Donald Trump says, well, this, is, this, is, this is the first time in 100 years that GDP has been higher than unemployment. Well, that's not true, but they probably don't care because he's their guy. He's doing it for them, and they just laugh and say, "Oh, Trump, he's cra-. when Trump tweets, when Trump does the stuff that that swing voters or persuadable voters get very uncomfortable with when his personal actions, behavior, and attitude, and uh, sometimes distant relationship with the truth uh, upsets those voters. The people who feel that he's on their side and doing it for him." They say, yeah, well, whatever, shut up. <laughs> and I, I think that for a lot, I'm sure there were people who were absolutely conned by Huey Long. I'm sure there were people who absolutely thought that he was just a sweet angel of a man uh, who was out there uh, fighting hard to try to help the the little folks. But I also suspect that there were many of them, if not most of them, who instead said, all politicians are dirtbags. I got a dirtbag here who at least at least punches the right direction. You rarely hear a populist politician utter the words, you can't have what you want or it's not within my power. Is it right. fair to say that populists generally aren't very good at tough love? They are not, because if we believe that the people are to rule. So what a republic, our system of government says not that the people rule, but that all rightful power descends from the public, right? Mm-hmm. This is a tr- that we are in a trusteeship with our government that we have empowered the government and it is our pro- it acts as our proxy. The the power is derived from the will of the people but the decisions do not derive from the will of the people. But if you say whatever the people want, the people should rule, you can't then say uh except for on that. Uh except for there. When I think about, you know, in the conclusion of the book I talk about the election of 1864 and Abraham Lincoln. 
and, you know, the miracle of Abraham Lincoln. And at a time where if we were ever going to have a true out-and-out demagogue uh, and an authoritarian, Abraham Lincoln was set for it perfectly. He had everything he needed. But they called that election in 1864. And remarkably, amazingly, Lincoln did not ever flinch from the work. He did not say, and if you act now, we'll end the war next week and no one else will have to die and slavery will be abolished anyway, unless you don't want it to be, and then it's fine and see you later. (laughs) He said, we have this hard work to do. We have this bad hard work that we have to do and we mean to finish it. Uh, And, you know, if you read his um, second inaugural and you think about the, what, that, what he was saying, what he was talking about, the, the, br- the brutal work of that war almost concluded and a promise to keep doing it if necessary. And then even more astonishingly to say, but we are going to forgive the rebels. We are going to forgive our countrymen who in treason, in revolt, we're going to forgive them. We're going to bind up our wounds and we're going to be one country again. None of that should have been popular. But great leaders don't just ride populist waves. They enlarge the human spirit. They enlarge the human mind. They live up to the standards of men like Lincoln, of, of, of people like George Washington and other leaders who didn't just say, um, I'll give you whatever you want if you just put me in charge. What they say is there's a right place to go and I want you to come there with me. Well, this may be a somewhat strange segue, but I might point out that of these seven populist politicians, better than half of them were victims of assassinations or attempted assassinations. <laughs> what does that tell us about populism in America? Well, when you stir up these passions, right, when you bring these things out, if you are, you know, Caesar, Caesar and Brutus, right, mm-hmm. um, it's an old story. When, when you stir these things up, when you re- if you're a real demagogue. Right. And and Long was a was a by God, the the realest of them all. If you're a real demagogue and you are making dishonest exploitations of emotion, if you are dividing people for your own benefit, if you are doing those things, if that's what you're doing, the the maelstrom does not leave you alone. You are you are on that. You are on those seas. And I don't know that. Let's see. So who so. Assassinated were they tried to kill T.R. Right. They tr- they they uh, paralyzed uh, an assassin paralyzed Wallace. Yeah. Uh, they killed Huey Long and Jackson. Anybody else? Oh, Unattempted. and Jackson. They tried to kill yeah. Jackson too. <laughs> well, but I got to say, until the very modern era where the Secret Service, it, basically the post 1963 era. Well, actually, after Squeaky From uh, in 1975, the the Secret Service deals with the situations very, and they they understand now about shutting down access and protective bubbles and making sure that everybody's wanted. The amount of security and the way that they protect the president now is very different than the way it used to be. But doing the math, and we could we could figure it out pretty quickly. I'm tr- I'm trying to. Th- I don't think anybody tried to kill Jimmy Carter, but other than that, every you know they all everybody got a try. So if you get a ele- if you got elected president, <laughs> yeah. uh, everybody prior to George W. Bush, they all got a shot. They all got a sh- they got shot at, or somebody tried to stab him, or <laughs> run him over with a car or a yeah. carriage or something. Yeah, and in the case of Jackson, you might have wanted a protective bubble to protect the assassin. <laughs> and he was old too. When yeah. the guy came after him and uh, he had he, his pistol misfire, his pistol jammed. Man, if you come to kill Andy Jackson, I don't care if he's seventy years old or not, you better get the job done because he. I mean, picture that the president of the United States, his cane out, his walking stick out, bludgeoning in the head his would-be assassin. Now that 
That is street cred. <laughs> and real quickly before we go, you say that the populist leaders of today shouldn't be asking who will protect the white men in America, but who will be the Andrew Jackson of Hispanic America. Well, and I don't know that that's a question for Republicans so much as it is right. us as observers of the news, as analysts. You know, the next wave of populist energy is probably going to look a lot more like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez mm-hmm. than Donald Trump. And Andrew Jack, the miracle, the 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 thing about Andrew Jackson is, he was the product of an immigrant wave. His parents were immigrants, penniless immigrants. His father was probably probably died a squatter. We don't know for sure, but he probably died squatting on land that wasn't his. Uh, and Andrew Jackson became the first governor of Florida, the first senator from Tennessee, uh, won the Battle of New Orleans, became president of the United States, built a massive fortune, did all of those things. For Hispanic Americans now, which represent the most recent huge wave of immigration, basically mid-80s to 2010, millions of Americans, among them and among their children and grandchildren, who will rise? Who will rise and be the leader of a populist revolt uh, on their behalf? Because it's out there and and it, we would be wise to be watching. Yeah. Again, Chris's book is called Every Man a King, A Short, Colorful History of American Populists. I really enjoyed it. Chris Starwalt. Thanks for joining me. You're very kind and generous. I really appreciate this time. Thanks again to Chris Steyerwalt for coming on the podcast. Get his book, Every Man a King, A Short, Colorful History of American Populists on Amazon, Audible, or in bookstores. Subscribe to his podcast, Perino and Steyerwalt, I'll Tell You What, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. And follow him on Twitter at at Chris Steyerwalt. You deserve a better email marketing platform. And unlike other email providers, Emma puts its customers first. It's powerful email marketing with a personal touch. Their award-winning team is always ready to support you on your email marketing strategy, design, list migration, and more. So you'll have everything you need to do your best email marketing yet. Request a customized demo of Emma's email marketing platform today at myemma.com. Again, that's myemma.com. Today's podcast was brought to you by Espresso Monster. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso or espresso and cream. I wouldn't even be recording this podcast right now if I hadn't had a vanilla espresso monster after lunch today. It's delicious, and it was just the jolt I needed. Try for yourself, folks. Close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at Pod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.